This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good evening, everyone. Well, it's going to be good morning when I release this, but good at, good evening on today, which is Thursday of this week. Uh, we will get into that in a second. Can you dig it, everybody? Uh, I can. Good to have you back for another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, and like you heard me just say, I am recording this on a Thursday this week. I am not recording it on a Friday because I am flying. So it's for context, it is now about eight o'clock on Thursday. I am actually flying out to my college hometown of Columbus, Ohio in about six hours. And so I need to uh, record this before I go out. I'm, uh, I'm going to, you know, the Ohio State Michigan State games this weekend. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to go see friends. I'm going to, you know, just celebrate, you know, a, a good weekend because, you know, it's, you know, it's getting that time of the year where we want to, you know, be around the people we care about. We want to do things that make us happy and, you know, do all this other shit. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of making yourself happy to make yourself happy. But, you know, doing things like this to kind of just, you know, get, you know, a context of what's going on in the world and really kind of, you know, embrace being grateful for what we have. And that's cheesy as fuck. And I hate that I just said that, but it's true. So anyway, for this week, what I want to talk about is a post I really kind of did just for fun when I was um, in, this was in last May of 2020. So this was kind of around um, 18 months ago already. Jeez, as a matter of fact, a long time ago. And um, it's relevant now because the topic is really picking up in my opinion. So and we'll get to this in a second because I am a huge fan of Survivor. I'm a Survivor nut. I watch it every single, I've watched every single season since about season 20. I've gone back and watched all the iconic moments. I know all the great cast members and characters. It's in the middle of a season right now, which I think is really good. It kind of started out, I was like, oh, this is a little like, you know, performative or whatever for me, whatever. It's actually turning out to be very good. And the last season I saw arguably was the best season ever. And it kind of gave me a really big insight because I think, honestly, the reason I like Survivor and a lot of people like Survivor is it because it is because, I should say, it, it, it gives people the ability to see human beings in their most raw form when everything is stripped away. And it's human beings and their psychology and their state of being and everything really thrown into absolute default mode and seeing how humans really interact with one another. And Survivor is a game of a lot of things. It's a game about, you know, strategy and tactics and people skills and everything. But most importantly, in my opinion, it's a game about power because you need power in order to advance in the game. Power can come in a lot of different forms. And I think it's like the rest of life. Survivor is a microcosm of the world outside of life. Is it the same thing as like, 
going and you know shitting in a bush and eating coconuts for you know 39 days. No, it's not. But I think it's an interesting topic to explore, and I actually haven't read it since I really kind of made it back in May when I really it was during COVID. I mean, Survivor was the last thing that was premiering during COVID. Really had nothing else to do that was really that you know important to do. But it was really fun to write it. I had an enjoyable time writing it. I do remember. So here we go. Let's uh, let's kind of just get into it. So the title is kind of like you know a play on birds and the bees. You know, hey Johnny, come on in here. Let's talk. So when a boy likes a girl, blah blah blah. blah. So your name probably isn't Johnny, and this post isn't about using metaphorical birds and insects to describe fucking each other. Never really got how that works, by the way. Something with the with the stinger, I guess. I don't know. But it is about two animals, and it's about something really fucking important. So to explain, let's go back 18 months ago to something incredibly important that happened. The fucking Survivor Season 40 season finale. And like I mentioned earlier, I alluded to my love of television show Survivor before, and I think I finally found the first time where I can really plug it into a constructive content. This is a really revelational moment for me, if you couldn't tell. So a lot of people like to say that football is the game that most represents life. And to those people, I hate to tell you, and hint, I really don't, but they're wrong. Completely wrong. Because, as I mentioned earlier, Survivor is the game that most represents life, and it's not close. So, for all of those who don't indulge in my nerdery, let me give you a run-through for those who don't nerd out about the show, or even know what it is, really. Survivor is basically taking a bunch of people, usually 20, from modern civilization, dividing them up into two teams called tribes, and throwing them into the jungle, usually somewhere in Fiji, for 39 days until only one is left standing. There are challenges for rewards, such as food and supplies, but the big one is the coveted immunity idol, which guarantees one tribe safe from sending someone home. When a tribe loses, they have to go to tribal council, where they vote someone off that tribe. Later in the game, when slightly over half the players are left, the tribes merge, and it becomes an individual game for individual immunity and individual rewards. The game then turns more insular and more cutthroat as there is less space to hide and more scrambling for safety. The trend of voting continues until there is usually a final three, which is where the biggest twist of all comes in. The people that are voted out after the merge sit on what is called the jury, and then they reward someone in the final three with a million bucks in the title of sole survivor. There are other things like hidden immunity idols, challenge advantages, spy shacks, the buddy system, and other wrenches that the producers throw into the game. But that's basically a simplified version of how it works. And if that wasn't hard enough, just remember, these people are absolutely fucking drained in all aspects. They're sleeping outside, completely exposed to the elements, starving, homesick, bitten up by bugs, sleep-deprived, and cuddling with people who most likely want to cut their throats at the first opportunity. It shows you people at their most vulnerable they could possibly be in the most extreme possible fashion. The amount that is revealed about human nature through player confessionals and interactions is incredibly interesting to behold. It's like taking a class in psychology, except without the weird dude picking his ass in the back corner of the room. Well, actually, that happens more often than you think, and you can see it on the camera if you look closely enough. Survivor icon Tyson Apostol recently admitted in a Survivor Winners at War confessional in Season 40 that the game is so taxing that when people lose, it can take them years to get over it. Jeremy Collins, one of the most ignored castaways and Survivor icons of all time, said that it, he wasn't mentally right for three months after he got back home. Collins is a firefighter. And he said that even he has trouble trusting the people in his ladder, the men and women that he has to trust with his life. The game fucks you up mentally, and its effects stick. So, how does one win this complex game? And it turns out there's not an answer for that question, at least not one that's concrete. There's not been one winner that has looked like the others, 
And even though they've had to change their strategy more than once to get ahead. But there is one common element that can make your road to the end a whole lot easier. Power. And that's what Survivor is based on. Whoever has the power in the tribe controls the tribe. He who has the gold makes the rules. For the longest time, however, people, including myself, always thought that it was strictly a game of numbers. So, let's say, for example, the merged tribe is broken into 12 people. Any number greater than 6 aligned together should easily dominate that other tribe. 7 beats 5, 8 beats 4, 9 beats 3, 10 beats 2, and 11 beats 1. So, raw numbers suggest a simple accumulation of the most important resource, which is other tribe members, should be enough to get you pretty far. But that's also wrong. And on its face, you must be wondering how that could be. Numbers don't lie, and that's true. But do some numbers matter more than others? You bet your freshly picked ass they do. Profit matters more than revenue. Number of lives saved matters more than the number of lives not saved. The number of people that historically don't come out in an election but come out to vote matters more than people that historically do come out and vote. The key is getting the right numbers. However, it took until the 40th season of Survivor, the most recent one I'm talking about, Winners at War. There is currently one going on called Survivor 41. This is the most complete season, which premiered last spring called Winners at War, for me to realize this. And it came from the guy who won. Tony Vlachos, a cop from New Jersey, Jersey City, New Jersey, is a modern legend in the world of Survivor. He's one of only two people, Sandra Diaz-Twine being the other, to win Survivor twice. He's in serious contention for being the greatest of all time. He's also one of the most memorable contestants ever, being classified by Dalton Ross of Entertainment Weekly, who is the designated Survivor blogger and writer, as the single most entertaining player in the show's illustrious 20-plus year history. There are a lot of reasons for this, but the most prominent is that, to those who don't know him, Vlachos would probably be considered a candidate for the mental institution closest to your home. He runs around the island like a crazy man, digs holes and sits in bushes and trees to spy on people, finds hidden advantages like crazy, talks behind backs and through smoke screens to everyone, reads people like children's books, and literally persuaded his closest alliance member to basically give him the first win, his win the first season in Survivor Kageon. This reputation has led to the perfect name for him. The Chaos King. The key to Vlachos' success and failure in a second season, Survivor Game Changers, is that he's the greatest player of instituting controlled chaos I've ever seen, and it's not close. Vlachos knows exactly the right moment to turn his chaos on and off like a light switch, and takes full advantage when he does to further himself in the competition. Even Jeff Probst, the host of the show, called him, in, quote, incredibly reckless, and compared him to the Tasmanian Devil from the Looney Tunes. He knows all the tricks in the book, and he's used all of them to varying degrees of success. However, this has also made him something else. One of the most notorious players in the history of Survivor, along with other legends like Boston Rob Mariano and Parvati Shallow. He's a, he's a gigantic target, which makes him a prime target for early elimination. He didn't realize this in Survivor Game Changers. He played so hard so early that it was easy to get the tribe together to oust him, led by Diaz Twine, believe it, believe it or not. The threat level of Lachos was amplified in the season that ended in the spring of 2020, Winners at War. This season was completely composed of winners from previous seasons, something the show had never done before. It was basically the NBA All-Star team of Survivor Legends. Knowing that he was one of the higher-profile winners, excuse me, Vlachos recognized early that he was a huge target and would likely suffer the same fate he had suffered in his second season if he didn't adjust his gameplay. 
and his adjustment proved to be one of the most insightful commentaries of human nature I've ever heard. His strategy was called Lions and Hyenas. It's a theory of power and how players use it to fight for supremacy. But it's not just applicable in reality television. As soon as he said it, I immediately began to see flashes of it everywhere. It was stunning how relevant it was to so many important things, much more so than I ever previously realized. I think it's an incredibly important thing to learn the dynamics of how and how, how they work to, of and how they work together, excuse me. Jeez, it's, it's late at night if you can't tell. To do so, we need to talk about the origins and players of this theory, the fatal flaw of the theory, and how it applies to life. So grab your spermicidal lube, or wait, actually no birds and bees, so do not grab that, and listen up. So this theory is not necessarily new. It has a lot of names and then its origin. Oppressor oppressed, master slave, others. However, I don't think either of those names really fit much anymore. Not necessarily because of the names, but because of the context. Disempowerment in theory revolves around revolving around power is counterintuitive. We all have much more power than we realize. Being victims of our own self-righteous sense of victimhood isn't a proper mindset to hold when discussing things such as this. So that I, the way I recommend thinking about this concept is through the lens of the best, I will hear no argument, so feel free to get the fuck out of here, and my personal favorite Disney movie ever, The Lion King. Even fits the name perfectly. So I'm pretty for, sure Vlachos derived it directly from the film, although I have nothing to confirm or deny this. We'll just say it's a matter of coincidence. Instead of oppressor oppressed and master slave, the lens I want you to view is high key versus low key. Not low-key in the sense of being a simp or a wuss, but more of a low-key person. Someone who doesn't have much much of a visual presence of someone else would. I'll frame this in survivor terms to give it a better understanding. I said in my intro that Vlachos' game thrives on controlled chaos. He's one of the most notorious players to ever have played. Notoriety paints a big target on your back. But it wasn't just Vlachos. Apostol, Collins, Diaz, Twine, Mariano, and Shallow all fit this description perfectly as well as did people like Ben Dreebergen, Yul Kwan, Sarah Lucina, and Kim Spradlin-Wolf. But that's just 10 out of the 20. What of the other 10? Well, to put it quite simply, they were more low-key players. They weren't that flashy. They won with a balanced diet of cunning, gamesmanship, and stealth over being outrageously dominant in one way or another. Mariano is widely, widely regarded as the greatest player of Survivor ever, He's been nicknamed the Godfather because of his incredible mix of brutal and seamless execution of eliminations, organizational mastery, and psychological warfare. Oh, not to mention he met his wife on the show, also a fellow winner who was on the season, married her, and had four children. Shal was also in the GOAT conversation. Her stunning looks and outrageous smarts helped work her way in and out of alliances seamlessly and helped engineer the Black Widow Brigade in her winning season, an all-female alliance that is widely regarded as the greatest one in Survivor history. D.S. Twine, another potential GOAT, is a master at pitting people against each other in her, quote, as long as it's not me strategy. She's won twice because of it. Collins and Spradlin Wolf are arguably the two most likable and socially dominant players the game has ever seen. Collins swept the vote in his winning season, and Spradlin Wolf came damn close, with E.W.'s Ross calling her win in Survivor One World the most dominant single-season performance he'd ever seen. 
Quan is a Yale graduate and former McKinsey consultant who some fucking how won the game using game theory and other economic methods to win the game and arguably the most loaded season of original players the show has ever seen in Survivor Cook Islands. The others I mentioned followed suit in one way or another. The other ten just don't have the reputation that they do. Sophie Clark and Michelle Fitzgerald admittedly during admitted during confessionals they faced severe insecurity due to the fact that they weren't viewed as, quote, good winners. This is, of course, ridiculous. When you win the most difficult game in the world to win, you win the most difficult game in the world to win. You outwitted, outplayed, and outlasted everybody, and that should be the end of it. But to some Survivor fans, it's not. Adam Klein, for example, also swept the vote to win the million dollars in title of sole Survivor. However, unlike Collins, he did it in a much different way. He cried every episode for what seemed like a minimum of seven times, but it was for a good reason. He and his mother successfully auditioned for a season where two family members went on together, called Blood vs. Water, which had been done numerous times in the show. But tragedy, unfortunately for us all, doesn't care. Mrs. Klein was diagnosed as stage 4 lung cancer right before they were about to depart. Klein wanted to stay and support her, but she asked him to ask the producers to roll over his audition to a future season, citing the circumstances. They agreed, and it worked out beautifully. As soon as Klein landed from the set, he ran to the hospital to see his mother. She died one hour later. Denise Stapley played a quiet game as well. She was the oldest contestant on Winners at War. Nick, Nick Wilson and Wendell Holland were two of the most recent winners who weren't perceived as outrageously talented at anything. They were more jack-of-all-trade types, and the same could be said for others. So, why unload all this nerdy Survivor trivia on you? Because it describes the theory that Blachos proposed perfectly, so let's get into it. Lions are the king of the jungle. No one fucks with them and everyone knows it. However, other animals want power as well, but they can't get it because no one can knock the lions off. Hyenas are one of the biggest threats to lions, but if you put a lion against a hyena, the lion wins that battle every time. So, what hyenas do to combat this is by creating packs of beings of lesser power to combat this bigular, the bigger singular power. One hyena against one lion can't do anything, but three hyenas against one lion might. So, what the lion decides to do is combat this and form a group, or pride, of higher power beings and stick together. Now we have a gridlock. The beings of higher power being stuck at the top, and the beings of lesser power on the outside trying to claw their way in. They're eternally gridlocked, but each one of them has a way they can be beaten. The way the hyenas can beat the lions is by singling out the lions one by one, picking them off, and weakening them bit by bit. After a while, the hyenas will overwhelm the lions and become the new dominant species. The way the lions win is by sticking together in solidarity, Sooner or later, the hyenas will get sick of being on the bottom of the food chain and lash out, and the lions will beat them down based on the fact that they're the more dominant species and they cannot lose in one-on-one -on -one combat. I liken this hyena-specific strategy to taking down a structure. When you want to take out a building, you don't just open up, the, open up on the whole building at once. You go after a specific support structure to weaken one at a time in order to get it to fall. When you want to take out a wall, you don't attack a little bit of all of the wall at once you go full swing into one part of the wall. When you want to take out Ralph Macchio and the Karate Kid, you don't go after him all at once. You buckle your sweep belt and you sweep the motherfucking leg to get the reference. Okay, so that was a lot. To break it down, let's bring in the earlier illusion of the Lion King to give you all a break from my survivor geekage. The Lion Pride headed by Mufasa, the kings of the Pride Lands. 
no one fucks with them. They run the show, and everyone acknowledges that fact, even if they don't like it. Other animals in the Pride Lands want power, but they simply can't access it because the lions always come together to snuff it out. You see this when James Earl Jones, or Darth Vader, or Mufasa, fuck, <laughs> goes to save Simba and Nala in the cave. They don't stand a chance. He's just too powerful for them to fight. Scar, Mufasa's brother, wants power. However, he knows that he can't go after his brother directly because he'll get shredded by the other lionesses that are loyal to Mufasa. He's stuck facing an impenetrable shield from his current position. So, where does he go? To the hyenas, of course. Why? Because they have things that can mutually benefit one another. Scar has inside information and resources, which in the Lion King terms is food, and the hyenas have much larger numbers than the lions do, even though they are individually inferior. When Scar proposes the alliance, he doesn't devise the strategy of directly storming Pride Rock, the center of the Pride Lands. So what do they do instead? They single out Mufasa, the most powerful lion in the Pride, and kill him using their far greater numbers, a stampede of other animals instead of just hyenas. Only when that is done and the biggest lion is taken out can they move in, storm the palace, and subvert the lions from their position. The reason why the hyenas cannot attack directly is because they're coming from a place of inferior positioning. Having the high ground, bringing a gun to a bazooka fight, and having a juiced-up mid-90s baseball team are all similar scenarios. They simply don't have the firepower to compete directly, so they look for other ways to gain that positioning. If not, the lions will simply overwhelm and crush them. I now take you back to this past season of Survivor. There's a reason why I went through descriptions of a bunch of people you could probably care less about. They're either lions or hyenas, and their descriptions tell you which category they belong to. A big dynamic early in this season was old school versus new school players. The players that had the most reputation and played the most were singled out very early in the game and sent back packing very quickly. Vlachos was the only contestant to pick on this from the jump. Realizing this trend, he imposed a strategy that I call lion herding, simply to what I described above. He decided early in the game that he was going to keep giant threats, such as Apostol and Dias Twine, around him for as long as possible in order to shield him, while laying low by not playing like a total lunatic early in the game. The strategy worked. Vlachos lasted until the merge, outlasting Apostol, Dias Twine, Mariano, and Shallow, who couldn't survive the purge of the players of the most reputation. Post-merge, Vlachos devised that strategy again, looping in people like his close friend Sarah Lucina, who had been allied with him the whole time, Collins, and Dreebergen, in order to shield him while tra creating a massive herd of lions to impose their will over the hyenas that had taken out the rest of the lions that I mentioned earlier on. Vlachos had positioned himself in the driver's seat without making any serious moves. But with Vlachos, that didn't last very long. It couldn't. He just couldn't help himself. After the loved ones visit, in which the crew flew out members of the castaways to see them in the family, the family members of the castaways to see them in the jungle, he didn't just put the foot on the gas. He ghetto stomped the motherfucker through the floor. Sensing he was in the position of power, he capitalized it by executing a tremendous blindside of Sophie Clark, which accelerated his game further. He began to will down the hyenas in the game, cutting their throats one by one, as well as any lion that betrayed ranks and crossed his path. Throwing and climbing trees to spy on people, nearly lighting the jungle on fire more than once, and his dutiful partner Lucina helping him on the way, Vlachos found himself in the final three once again. And the results were masterful. Vlachos won a dominating 12-4-none jury vote over Natalie Anderson and Fitzgerald, all without having a single vote cast against him during the duration of the game. It was astonishing. 
and maybe the most dominant single-season performance in the history of Survivor. But there was a time during the final stretch where I was seriously concerned that Vlachos wouldn't last and would burn out before he hit the money. And it perfectly exemplifies what I call the fatal flaw, the one thing that is an absolute no-no for both lions and hyenas. So, remember when I said it's not a numbers game when it comes to power, but having the right numbers? Well, if you don't, you run into some problems, mostly identifying which people and populations are in fact lions and hyenas. However, there is another venue in which this can become an issue, which culminates in the fatal flaw of the lions and hyenas strategy. Infighting. There must be absolute solidarity within two parties as to who is with who and what the goal and mission are, or everything falls apart. Remember, strength in the right numbers is the key. The reason that it matters for lions is that they cannot be seen as stag or singular. The reason that this is important is twofold. First, it will make that person an easy target for opportunistic hyenas to pounce. Remember the Mufasa example. A lion cannot stray far from the other lions before they eventually get pounced on. Second, it will make that person be doubted in the eyes of the other lions. They may start to think that that lion is betraying ranks, like Scar, and going to seek opportunity in their perceived inferior bunch. The reason that it matters for hyenas is what I've been saying all along. It is impossible to attack people with greater power unless you have the numbers to back it up. One hyena versus one lion loses every time. Several hyenas versus one lion could possibly win. A group of lions can only pull off the direct attack because they have more firepower. The numbers game is absolutely essential for the hyenas to win in order to have a chance at achieving power. Infighting inherently weakens these two strategies. Lions are naturally inferior in terms of their population. There are definitely more hyenas out there than lions, as seen in my references to both the Lion King and Survivor. Lions need all the numbers they can get to support attacks from opportunistic hyenas and hyenas need all the numbers they can get in order to have the opportunity to go after loyalistic lions. Anything that goes against this deliberately weakens either population. An example of the lion version of the fatal flaw is, evidence, is evident in the home stretch of the last season of Survivor. In this season, when the contestants that still remained reached the final five, there was an opportunity from a player to re-enter the game that had been previously voted out. The winner of that challenge was Anderson who had been the first contestant voted out and spent 32 days on what was called the Edge of Extinction, a separate desolate island where she toiled for almost five weeks awaiting a chance to get back into the game. After Anderson won her way back into the game, she, being the hyena in this scenario, immediately went to the other hyena in the, in the tribe, Fitzgerald, and proposed working together. The Lion Alliance, consisting of Dreebergen, Lucina, and Vlachos, had le recently roped in the old hyena Stapley and seemed invincible at that point. But Anderson and Fitzgerald had other plans. Anderson had come back into the game with a hidden immunity idol, which, if found or obtained by a player, gives them immunity at Tribal Council from being eliminated despite not winning the challenge. It's the biggest trump card in Survivor, and can be nothing short of devastating when either it is either used or not used. Additionally, Fitzgerald won immunity at the challenge, meaning that the two of them were essentially safe from being eliminated, forcing the Lions to turn on themselves. Vlachos, suspecting that Anderson had something, wanted to split the votes two to two between the four-person alliance between Anderson and Stapley, with Stapley being left out of the loop, 
in order to flush the idol out of the game while keeping the core three safe. Lacina, having played a near flawless game at that point, disagreed. She was assured that Anderson didn't have anything. Vlachos, having full her full trust, agreed to do things her way and throw all four votes on Anderson. This mistake started a massive domino effect. At Tribal Council, Anderson played her idol as she should have. The problem was, Dreebergen and Vlachos also had hidden immunity idols. Being paranoid of being targeted, they both played them, giving an unprecedented four people immunity and leaving Lucina and Stapley as sitting ducks. Stapley got the short end of the stick and was sent packing. With all of their hidden advantages flushed, the Lion Alliance was completely vulnerable. Additionally, whenever a hidden immunity idol is played, it is immediately put back into circulation. Vlachos did the whole, quote, setting the island on fire thing to try to find it, but to no avail. However, one person did find it. Anderson, a.k.a. the worst person that could have found it. Fortunately for Vlachos, he won immunity at the next challenge. However, Dreebergen and Lucina were left totally exposed with nothing to protect them. Also, they had no idea who Anderson was going to play the idol for, meaning that if they chose the wrong person to throw their votes on between her and Fitzgerald, they would be completely at the mercy at their mercy in terms of who the twosome wanted to send home. In a completely unprecedented turn of events, Lucina decided to go rogue again. She had recently given an impassioned speech at Tribal Council, where she talked about a perceived gender bias between how men played the game versus how women did, and how it made her feel when the mob came after her on social media after she won her season. She felt that she was being perceived as playing Vin Vlachos' shadow, something that Vlachos, myself, and any sensible fan completely disagreed on, and she felt that she needed to do something to break out. So, she did. Dreebergen and Lucina had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation before the vote, in which Dreebergen tearfully told Lucina that he was giving her his blessing to vote him out if she felt that it was best for her. Dreebergen is a former Marine who has suffered traumatic PTSD and credits his wife, Kelly, with saving him from committing suicide. However, the reason he was perceived as a lion during the season wasn't the way he won his season before. He repeatedly blew the game up and betrayed people, much like Flachos. And this reputation followed him into the season. He was disliked by a lot of people, and his social game deteriorated because of that reputation. It was a reason that Vlachos wanted to align with him so closely. Dreebergen had constantly confessed in interviews that he wanted to play a different game and leave it feeling better about his integrity, wanting to be an example to his children and wife about how he could be a better man. Dreebergen knew he couldn't win. There was no way he could pull those votes from the jury. So, he viewed that falling on the sword to advance his closest ally, Lucina, was a way to restore his reputation. Shit was coming out of a, like, what this was coming out of a movie. I was completely floored. So Lucina took full advantage. She flipped on Vlachos and voted out Dreebergen along with Anderson and Fitzgerald in order to pad her resume with one more big move before she could potentially go to the end. And I hope you're seeing the trend here. Because Lucina broke ranks, even for the split-second decision to serve her best interest, she compromised the whole population, even if she didn't mean to. I don't want to bash her whatsoever. In my opinion, she's a top 10 player I've ever seen and an absolute monster in all facets of the game. But what I do want to highlight is the prowess of Anderson and Fitzgerald and how opportunistic hyenas can do major damage when they get an opening to do so. But ultimately, ultimately I should say, it turned out to be Lucina's downfall. Anderson won the final immunity challenge and the pair of Lucina and Vlachos were completely at her mercy. 
The reason for that is when a contestant wins the final immunity challenge, they get to decide two things. What person they want to come with them to the end and what two contestants they wanted to face off in a fire-making challenge in order to earn their spot in the final three, which is actually, ironically, a tradition that started with Ben Dreebergen. Anderson picked Fitzgerald to come with her, forcing her two biggest threats, Lucina and Vlachos, to make fire against one another. What followed was hashtag epic. In the closest fire-making challenge the show has ever seen, Vlachos outlasted Lucina by mere seconds in a comeback victory, earning a spot in the final three. Even though he was heavily favored to win, Vlachos burst into tears. His best friend and survivor, and a great friend outside of it, was gone, and he had something to do with that. He began to sob uncontrollably in her arms, repeatedly apologizing for failing to protect her. The hyenas hadn't just decimated the lions. They had emotionally broken the biggest one. Because the lions had failed to stick together, opportunistic hyenas were given the opportunity to infiltrate and decimate them which they did. A great example of this hyena version of the fatal flaw resides in, yet again, The Lion King. In the climax of the film, Scar is begging for mercy from his nephew, Simba. He ratted out his literal hyena co-conspirators, saying that it was their fault that this all transpired. Simba, of course, didn't believe him and quite anticlimactically threw him off of Pride Rock, where he basically landed unharmed. As hard as that is to believe, I still can't believe it. But anyway... The hyenas recognized his betrayal and, when Scar tried to apologize, they turned on him and ripped him to shreds. This allowed the lions to reconsolidate and kick the shit out of the hyenas, regaining control of the Pride Lands. Remember, a group of lions beats a group of hyenas every time. Because the hyenas had failed to stick together, they subverted themselves to the lions' will, which allowed them to be crushed by allowing those with more firepower to grab a foothold against them. Okay, so it's one thing to see these movies, these things in movies and reality television. But there are plenty of real-life examples, in my opinion, too. So, like I said, contrary to the whole podcast at this point, there are examples of this everywhere. I've been alluding to it in several posts already, not just in this context. I've talked many times about our society's ruling class and how they feel threats to their institutional power from people like Elon Musk, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and Kanye West. That's probably the biggest example in modern society where this theory can be observed. But lions and hyenas are in every single element of our society if we look closely enough. So let's get to some examples. In my opinion, and I think this is more of a fact than an opinion at this point, but who knows, there are four things you need in order to have a reign of dominance in the NFL. A great quarterback, a great head coach, a great general manager, and a great owner. You need a great captain and leader at the most important position, quarterback, in all sports. You need a great head coach to be able to lead those players and guide them through the turbulence on and off the field of an NFL season. You need a great general manager in order to pick great players and execute great deals. You need a great owner to spend money to finance all the operations. In other words, a collection of lions. And one team in the NFL up until recently, has consistently fit that bill for about 20 years, up until March of 2020, the New England Patriots. Assembling their collection of Lions and Tom Brady, great quarterback, Bill Belichick, great head coach, Nick Casario, basically their great GM with massive input from Belichick, and Robert Kraft, their great owner, 
The Patriots ran roughshod over the NFL for two decades, obliterating nearly every single team in their, pa- in their path en route to nine Super Bowl appearances with six wins, an absolutely astonishing feat. Were there others that played a part? Absolutely there were. Coaches and coordinators like Ruben Cronell, Brian Flores, Joe Judge, Josh McDaniels, Mac Patricia, and Charlie Weiss were instrumental in their success. Players like Patrick Chung, Julian Edelman, Stefan Gilmore, Rob Gronkowski, Dante Hightower, Ty Law, Matt Light, Logan Mankins, Devin McCourty, Willie McGinnis, and Mike Vrabel were tremendous assets for the team, all of them contributing to their success. But a lot of the NFL has talented players. Not a single one had a consistent grouping of that great quarterback, head coach, GM, owner category. The Patriots were the Lions of the NFL, and every other team was a hyena. But it begs the question, if they were so dominant, why did they not win more than they did? Why did they lose three Super Bowls? Why didn't they get more out of AFC Championship games, or get out and get more out of AFC Championship games other than losing some of them? The answer was that hyenas found a stag lion, isolated it, and used that foothold to destroy the other lions and momentarily grab power. So let me explain. The teams that gave the Patriots the most trouble during their dominant two-decade run were the Baltimore Ravens, the Denver Broncos, the Indianapolis Colts, the New York Football Giants, and the Philadelphia Eagles. The Giants beat the Patriots in two of their three Super Bowl losses, and the Eagles beat them in their most recent one. The Ravens are one of the most well-run sports organizations in the world. The specific Broncos and Colts teams I'm talking about were both quarterbacked by Peyton Manning. In case you're unfamiliar, he was decent at the whole football thing. But... This really doesn't have much to do with Peyton Manning at all, or the teams themselves. It has to deal with the way they isolated and pounced on the one specific line, quite literally, as you soon find out, that they could. Tom Brady. In football, it's actually quite easy to, easy to isolate Lions. Only two, the quarterback and the head coach, are on the field at once. The GM and the owner sit in the press box. And for those in the field, only one, the quarterback, physically plays. The challenge is then easy, but not so easy. Find ways to take out the quarterback. Tom Brady is what made the Patriots go offensively. He was and is so tremendous at so many things. But Tom Brady has one glaring flaw in his game. By every quarterback's standards, he's not very athletic. Like, at all. Go watch his combine footage if you want more details. The strategy for all four teams was to make Tom Brady's job as hard as possible, more specifically in their pass rush. Hit him early, hit him often, and hit him as hard as possible. Do anything and everything to throw him off his game. Make him miserable. The teams that I mentioned all succeeded at that task. The pass rushes of the Ravens, led by Elvis Dumerville, Ray Lewis, and Terrell Suggs. Broncos, led by Demarcus Ware and Von Miller. Colts, led by Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis. And the Giants, led by Jason Pierre-Paul, Michael Strahan, Usia Omenyora, and the Eagles, led by Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham, tormented Brady and, when most successful, were able to successfully isolate the Lion, therefore usurping the Lions as a collective. The dynasty, at least temporarily, toppled. The Democratic Party has preached for years that they are the party of the oppressed and trodden upon. The LGBTQ community and minorities all strongly rally behind them, although this is fracturing a little bit now. That makes them the hyenas in terms of a political scenario. In September of 2016, then-candidate Hillary Clinton was campaigning in an LGBTQ rally when she uttered this phrase, quote, You know, to just be grossly generalistic, 
You could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, end quote. Oof. Clinton made the mistake, some would say not a mistake, but that's neither here nor there, of categorizing a fourth of the country's voting populace, Clinton and Trump split the popular vote almost directly in half, as deplorable. As the head hyena, she had made the mistake of attacking the lion population directly. She poked the bear, and she paid dearly for it. The Trump campaign pounced, immediately turning that speech into a highlight reel and blowing it up over his large social media following and television platform. Clinton eventually lost, and that gaffe was cited as a major, if not the major, reason that she lost. Were there some Trump people that were deplorable? Certainly. There are deplorable people in every political party. But that generalization was clearly inaccurate, unless you're a more cynical bastard than I am, and if you are, I'm proud of you. You can say the same about President Trump, or then-President Trump, I should say, and the Republican Party he infiltrated. Trump was, in this case, a hyena going into the lion's den of ruling class Republicans. How did he infiltrate? He and his rabid following devoured candidates such as Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, and Marco Rubio, isolating each individual line until the party had no choice but to adhere to his wishes. Similarly, although he didn't win, Bernie Sanders had a familiar and perhaps more devastating effect on the Democratic side of the aisle. I've often alluded to how Sanders and Trump are essentially the same person, just on complete opposite sides of the aisle. This example further adds to the proof. Sanders, the anti-ruling class hyena, and his supporters tried to do what Trump did and isolate individual hyenas. The only one he couldn't have success with was Clinton. What he did succeed in, however, was cause massive infighting amongst the lions of the Democratic Party, causing a quite noticeable split between the anti-ruling class faction and the ruling class faction, much like, much like Trump did with the Republican side. With this amount of infighting amongst the lions of both parties, substantially tribal warfare began to occur for another group to announce their dominance over another. Following on a somewhat political note, the lions of the mass media sphere are also going, undergoing this type of disruption. There's a reason why independent media companies such as Dar Barstool Sports, The Daily Wire, and Morning Brew are becoming more and more popular. It's not happening by accident. It's happening because the mass media is largely dog shit. It's miraculous that it's taken some people this long to come out to this fact, myself included. This doesn't just include the mainstream news sources of news, such as Fox and MSNBC, but also networks such as ESPN and literally anything produced by Ted Turner. Don't get it twisted, folks. They're all exactly equal to dog shit. Although I do have a soft spot for Fox Sports set up. Cowherd, Jenny, Joy, Nick Wright, Skip Shannon, Joel, the rest. Love y'all. Noticing this dog shittery, independent, aka hyena, media personalities such as Pat McAfee, Alex Cooper, and Sophia Franklin, and others, well, not, I guess not Sophia Franklin anymore, she's a nobody, and others have capitalized by outsourcing these companies' number one, res number one resource, the talent pool they possess, and have gone rogue starting their own brands under their own names and creating a whole new blue ocean of market share for themselves. The results for most large companies have been catastrophic. Public opinion and ratings have plummeted, and notable media personalities are branching out, if not fully breaking entirely. Sean Hannity has his own radio show. Colin Cowherd owns the rights to his, owns the right to his own show, so does Stephen A. Smith. The Alex Cooper is currently in a fight with Bar was in a fight with Barstool to gain their intellectual property back. Tucker Carlson owns his own media company as do Dave Portnoy and Ben Shapiro. This rapid decentralization is not only evidence in the media, but in multiple other industries as well. Remember the lines of the taxi industry? Meet the hyenas Uber and Lyft. 
People are starting their own businesses on platforms, although indicators of success have been varied at best. Have an idea for a show on Lion Television Network, meet the hyenas of YouTube. People like David Dobrik and Brian Rose of London Real and others have started their own businesses there as well, but have to constantly be wary of increased censorship and changing content restrictions. Just ask Rose, He's going through it. he was going through it then. He'll probably get kicked off of both LinkedIn and YouTube within the span of a month for no specific reason at all. Odd, but not really. So, as we've covered, there are big examples of this stuff everywhere. But, for the most part, there are kind of big examples of the large brands and names attached to them. Or these are kind of big examples of the large brand and names attached to them. You might be wondering, how the fuck does this even apply to me? Well, what I would say is that the first thing that applies to you is the simple understanding of the concept itself. Your role should be to understand the situations you find yourself in, in your life, and determine which side of the fence you belong. Both can work and both change, very frequently, in fact. The other thing, seek power for the right reasons. Lions and hyenas are just two sides of the same coin. Not as inherently good or bad. So, whatever side of the fence and whatever situation you find yourself in, acknowledge it and do your best to work well within the system. Both are needed and both are important. And the other thing, probably don't use the analogy to explain sex to your kids. I don't really have a fucking clue how you would spend that shit. So, that's it for this week, guys. That was a lot of fun. I like that one. So, I, I really had an enjoyable time with that post, even though, you know, you probably, it all flew over your head, honestly, with all the survivor shit. But anyway, guys, so, have a great week. Um, you know, Thanksgiving coming up next week, you know, everything going on like that. So be safe in your travels. Have, you know, I go hope you guys are having a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Own the day. Open your mind. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I make my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?